Welcome to the Being Human UTU podcast, where Dr. Randy Jasmine and Dr. Jim Hindigas will discuss issues relative to the humanities and technology at Utah Tech University. And now your hosts for Being Human UTU podcast, Dr. Randy Jasmine and Dr. Jim Hindigas. Welcome to the Being Human Utah Tech podcast. My name is Randy Jasmine, and I'm here with my friend and colleague, Jim Hendigus. This is our third episode of our second season of the podcast in which we talk about the intersection between humanities and technology, particularly as it relates to those of us who work in the field of higher education. Today, I'm going to turn things over right away to Jim to tell us a little bit about what we're going to talk about and who our guest is. Thank you, Randy. Uh, I, Randy asked me a little while ago, what would you like to talk about for our next podcast? And I usually gravitate towards the thing that is at least the most provocative on social media amongst English people, um, which is not very exciting, <laughs> I'll admit. But uh, one of the things that's been a, a huge topic is um, artificial intelligence in writing. Um, it's been, you know, we, we've seen technology be a part of, of the teaching profession um, on the end of assisting us and helping us and also been on the end of, are they helping the students trick us? And, and so this was on the end of, are you, are you telling me that a student can <laughs> uh, write something not f generated from them, a, a computer will assist them in writing and doing um, the, the assignments that we ask them to do. And so rightfully so, the topic would, would lead me to, to be a little panicked as a writing instructor. And so looking into it, I, I found an article. Uh, it was uh, written in Inside Higher Ed. Um, Machines can craft essays. How should writing be taught now? By Susan Agnestino. I hope I said that right. And so we weren't very familiar, Randy and I, with AI technology. So we went in-house and asked uh, Curtis Larson. Um, he's in computers here at Utah Tech. <laughs> you, you, you introduce yourself and tell us what you do. But we're, I'm just so thankful getting your perspective on this because, I mean, I'll just be honest and say this sort of panic it makes me a little bit nervous about what the future of my profession looks like. And so maybe you can help me feel more nervous or, or less nervous. Depends on what you want. I'll try to help. So um, I've been teaching here uh, in computer science for a little over 20 years. And uh, one of the sets of courses I teach is I have one on artificial intelligence and one on machine learning. Those are they're undergraduate courses. So as you might imagine, they're kind of surveys, introduction to those topics that are much, much deeper if you are able to go into um, a graduate program. And uh, I'm currently working on some research where we're using machine learning to try to uh, decipher things like um, the interaction between different genes in the fruit fly larva as it's developing. So that's just one application. Mm -hmm. So anyway. Which all that sounds really beneficial to society. And so I wonder, <laughs> one of my main questions would, what is the benefit to society for having a, a, a program that would generate writing? So I'm going to reference a little bit of some of the stuff that was in this paper that you've talked about. So what, what do you think the benefit of having a calculator is for an engineering student or for a, a math student or anybody who needs to do computations of a numerical nature? 
I, I think it's really beneficial. I mean, one of the things that Randy and I have talked about, which I wonder I, I, is then does it become a, a difference in discipline? Because one, one of my, my thoughts with math is that you're deducing an idea to get to the right answer, right? I mean, and typically, like, I mean, we're, we're getting to a right answer with a calculator, whereas we're almost doing the inverse in, in writing. We're opening up the conversation and seeing, you know, how that human being would interpret a particular circumstance. And so, I mean, I see the value in assisting, but I'm also still panicked. I'm thinking, well, is it the same? Is it the same discipline? Oh, and, and, and I don't know if it's the same. Um, but I also don't know what your actual learning objectives are when you're, you say, assign a student a paper, a, a writing assignment. What is it you're hoping that they develop as far as skills go? What kind of learning outcome do you expect them to have? through this experience of creating an article or a paper? Mm -hmm. Well, I think, you know, there's there's places in the writing process that we expect unique thought and unique um, writing. Several of us um, who teach in the composition program use uh, a textbook called um, They Say, I Say by Gerald Graff and, and, and Kathy Birkenstein. And what they have in that book are templates, templates that help students make the mechanical adjustments that they need to make their writing suitable for academic writing. So they, a, a template would sound something like this. While I disagree with Smith's initial, uh, initial premise that blank, um, I disagree with him when he says blank. And so what they argue is the templates are just the way that you make that academic move. And so when I think of that, that seems to me to be like what the calculator would provide them with, um, setting it up to allow them then to say what part of the argument they agree with, what part of the argument they disagree with, and then why. It seems that if you are now, and, and, and having looked into, explored Moonbeam, which is mentioned in this article in the last couple days, Moonbeam is now saying, hey, give me a couple keywords and phrases and I'll fill in those blanks for you. So instead of saying, here's the template that allows the student to think critically, which is a huge part of almost all of our learning objectives in our classes, the AI that's being discussed in this article says, I'll put some stuff in there. And it's through familiarity with concepts. It's through linking ideas together that then the, the, the you know, I'm going to go into detail about this later, but the human writer can engage with it at, at different points in the process, but it seems to me like filling in those blanks, that's where we run into some problems where we as writing instructors would consider that to be a dishonest practice on the part of the students. So it, it's gone too far in the sense that it's made the whole argument on their behalf rather than having them construct an argument and having the writing tool assist in polishing it. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a good way of, of describing it because, you know, I, I use the templates as an example, but also, you know, this, this um, semester I, I've been using Grammarly um, to see what kind of writing aid that offers. And it is a step up from the standard gram, gram, grammar and spell checker, you know, that, that, 
I grew up with and that was going on when I was in graduate school and all of that. And so that I would put in that same category as that template, whereas the stuff we're talking about here, yeah, it, it goes further than that and it substitutes. If I can just put in the right keywords and phrases, it's going to offer thinking for me. It's going to offer the thought process, the critical thinking process. I'm okay. going to do it. I'm going to do it on behalf of the student. Okay. So the phrase that I keep hearing is critical thinking. That critical thinking is probably more important than the spelling, than the grammar. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, that, that you want to take them together, but yes, critical thinking is the, is the, uh, the meat and of the pie and grammar is, is the crust. Yeah. But I mean, and, and as you referred to, we've had spell checkers and grammar checkers for years now, and those were not too much. That wasn't cheating for a word processor to suggest to a student. You're just turning up the pot. <laughs> it's, it's, right. We're, we're slowly cooking the frogs alive, right? So um, anyway, at some point, it gets, it gets to a level where you're uncomfortable as a professor because your students now no longer are generating any original thought from your perspective, and they're letting the AI just fill in all the blanks. So the only critical thinking that's going on there is whatever comes out of that tool. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, except for they would have to. I, I, I quickly found out using Moonbeam that the better your keywords and phrases, the, the, the better or more academic sounding the writing that was produced. So there would be some critical thinking, hmm, what keywords and phrases am I going to enter in here to have it then generate first an outline and then an actual essay for me, if that's what I choose to have it generate. And is an outline generally a part of, a, say, a writing assignment for you? Yeah. And, and, you know, it's funny you bring that up because I've talked to some people about, not necessarily related to AI, but, you know, what, what do you do about plagiarism concerns? And one of the biggest safeguards that many of my colleagues think is, oh, I have my students generate a, a detailed outline. They have to come up with a detailed outline so that I, that I know that the essay that they create afterwards is their own. Well, the, every step of the, of the process in Moonbeam, the, the thing before the essay is a very detailed outline that it produces. So even that part of it is available for students should they choose to do that. So like I said, really, the only time you're thinking absolutely independently is, I think it's the third or fourth screen, it says, put in a title, who is the audience you're writing to, and then list keywords and phrases that you want to be a part of this piece of writing. That's, that's the original generation. So... You mentioned the keywords and phrases, but you don't say what the point is that you want to be argued. You don't even take a side of an argument. You let the AI come up with whether it's for mm -hmm. or against. Yeah. Well, well, you, you. Oh, so I'm dominating the conversation no, here because it, I've had I, the experience with. This is with my Moonbeam. panic. <laughs> I, 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 I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, you know, throw out a political football here. But just before we came on the air, I typed in. Black Lives Matters, racist, police, violence. And just by putting those keywords in, the AI generated 
very strong anti-Black Lives Matter arguments. And I said to Jim, I ran out of time. I have a feeling that if I typed in Black Lives Matter, social justice, equality, um, uh, freedom, I would get writing that made very strong positive connections about Black Lives Matters. So I am in some way making connections simply by the words that I'm choosing to be connected, right? Right, right. Well, I mean, w what I think about the doomsday situation for me is what we talked a little bit about was that students will just use it to cheat and they'll, it will, and the, and we all know as teachers that the, the reality, the scary part of that is that we're building a society where students just don't know how to write and they don't know how to compose their thoughts. They don't know how to rationalize something. That would be the, the doomsday situation. But I know that the other end of the conversation is the idea that technology we will work with technology and in the way that we have in our society when it, it's benefited us, helped us be better. Um, I was I was also talking to Randy, an essay that we often use in our writing classes is an article by or yeah, article by Clive Thompson called Smarter Than You Think. And it he talks about how um, um, an AI chess program actually could help somebody who plays chess to play better to be able to work with the machine to actually make better strategic moves. But I, my quick analogy, I kept thinking about this was, so I play the drums. I don't know if I've mentioned that to either <laughs> one of you. I, I had this experience the other day with a friend. We went, uh, he was recording. He's a, he, he plays guitar and he was doing some original work and he was using a program, I think it's called Easy Drummer or something like that, where it basically is an AI drummer. And he's like, hey, look how cool this sounds. And it sounds like a real drummer. And I'm like, yeah, that's real cool. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I, I've only worked all my life to try and get better at this instrument, but I'm glad the computer can can do a better job than me. But there was that that feeling of, of going, oh, you know, I've been replaced. But then there's also that other end, the, the sad thing is that you know, there's such a value in being able to go through the practice to do it yourself as opposed to the computer assisting you. And so that, that's the, really the debate that I've gone through is that to what extent do I want to force my students to go through the practice of writing, to grow as a writer, um, even if they have an ability to, to cheat? Um, uh, that, that's what I'm struggling with in all of this <laughs> is that, you know, to and maybe I should stop using such a strong word as cheat. Maybe I should just soften and, and compromise and say this is more of a facilitation and that we should tame the facilitation. And, and that, that argument is brought up in this, in this essay as well. This idea that um, the professor at North Carolina State, I believe his name was Fife, had his students work with this software and generate ideas very similar to the the Clive Thompson chess example that you use. And I thought one of the strongest points that was made, and, and maybe this is taking that idea of templates that I introduced earlier a little bit further, that it can help particularly, say, non-native speakers of a language who are international students. You know, we every year we'll get a said number of non-native speakers of English in our in our writing classes. And something like this could be extremely beneficial to them to show them the kinds of connections. If, I mean, if you pick the filters, you know, you pick, this is an essay that's written for a professor and, you know, it's going to have these kind of academic terms in it. 
it can help them to understand the kinds of connections that are expected there. And I can see the value of that kind of collaboration. But as you point out, I mean, we will probably always be worried about where does that come from? I mean, I, I believe I've said this on this podcast before, you know, I always think about knowledge and, and what it means to possess knowledge and how that's changing in the society that we live in. I have always been known by my friends as someone, oh, he knows everything about sports. He knows he's just an encyclopedia of sports. And now I say, yeah, now I'm just 30 seconds ahead, right? If you say, who won the 1955 World Series? And I say the Brooklyn Dodgers. Oh, that's great. But you're 30 seconds ahead of somebody getting on their phone and finding out that the Brooklyn Dodgers won the 1955 World Series. Unless that, they already had their microphone on, plugged into <laughs> Google search. And they still beat me. They still beat me. Yes, that is definitely a scenario that could happen. So that makes me think about the changing nature of knowledge and you know, and, and kind of connects back to, to what Curtis was talking about with calculators, how math and teaching math and concepts about math knowledge and other fields that heavily involve math changed once powerful calculators were available on a, on a, wide, on a widespread basis. So I want to address the idea of cheating just a little bit. So in, in my syllabus, I usually have like a page and a half describing cheating. I don't read that to my students, but I tell them that they should read through it. But then I explain to them, these are the objectives. This is what I expect you to be learning in this semester and in individual assignments. Anything you do to prevent you from learning those objectives is cheating yourself, at least, of this learning experience. And so that doesn't mean that it stops students from going out and finding somebody else's program and trying to turn it in as their own. But at least that helps me to express to them what I expect out of them is I want them to go through this and why I want them to go through it. I, you know, it's just like a, a piano teacher expects their student to go practice those piano numbers and not just show up at the next lesson and still can't play any of them. And I expect my students to go off and spend time struggling and fighting with this new thing to them until they can master it. And so... I don't know exactly how to address that in the same context of um, the writing assignments that you have. Um, but I don't see the tools going away. Um, I do see um, attempts on, on our part where we could do things like, um, how do you make sure that the student has actually spent their own personal time thinking about the argument that they want to make, even which side of of something that they want to be on, right? How can you get them to take the time to reflect on that and think th think it through to study on it, but not to go just ask a tool, which side should I take? Mm -hmm. And then construct at least an outline of a critical argument at, for, for what they're trying to do so that you can get that um, critical thinking process recorded from them, help them to realize that it's important for them to realize how to develop these arguments. And then so what if an AI writes the paper? Well, and that's, so, and so, yeah. Oh, go ahead. I mean, so, yeah. so, so yeah. that, that, that's, that's a, a, a non-English, non-composition professor saying, so what, um, to everything that you've been doing for all your, all this time, right? <laughs> and that's, but I'm just trying to take from what you said about what you think the important pieces mm -hmm. are and spelling, I mean, it's really important to be able to spell, but people survive these days without 
being able to spell. It's important to get grammar correct, but people survive without. Mm -hmm. But you want them to originate ideas and put together a, a line of reasoning that that actually would help to at least help somebody understand their viewpoint, even if it doesn't convince them to join that viewpoint. I, I was um, thinking, and once again, I mentioned this to Randy, I, I was thinking about the, the Rocky Four analogy that I, I think I'm always gravitating <laughs> towards. I'll explain. Wh which one was Rocky Four? That was the Russian one. Okay, gotcha. I'm on board now. Okay. <laughs> but it was that scene where uh, the uh, Ivan Drag... Uh, Draco. Dra 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 yeah, I, it was Draco. It was, yeah, it? Ivan Draco, yeah. Yeah. He had access to all these technological, like, uh, these really fancy exercise machines. And there was even, like, this hint that he was taking steroids and all that kind of stuff. I don't think it was a hint. He actually was, was like, <laughs> and, and then Rocky was just out in this uh, barn, you know, doing push-ups off of, like, pieces of wood. And <laughs> there is this part of me as a teacher, for better or for worse, that wants the students to go through the slog of writing. I even, right now in the... During the semester, in my English 2010, they're writing a 10-page paper. And for many of them, that's one of the longest papers they've ever written, um, which is kind of sad, but that's the reality here. And I talked to them about page 6 or page 5. Like, you can write page 1, you can write page 2. Probably 3, you have enough energy for that. Maybe 4 just feels like the finish line, but it's page 5, 6, 7. That's where they get exhausted. And I tell them there's sort of a mechanical aspect to this. You've got, you just look at each paragraph. There's a topic sentence. You're making a claim. You're supporting it with evidence, some kind of quote. You're doing some kind of commentary on the quote, and then you're concluding it, and then you're repeating that over and over again. That's a solid paragraph. That's going to get you pretty decent grades through college if you just keep repeating that formula throughout your body paragraphs. And that's where I struggle and think, if they lose that because um, um, the AI does that for them, the two questions I, I would have is, well, maybe that just becomes obsolete, that maybe they, they will have the assistance in the same way that they're not having to do long division with a calculator. On the other hand, I'm thinking if they're in a situation where they do need to create a 10-page paper on their own without any assistance. They'll just be, the, the, the word I keep using is atrophy. Like they just don't, haven't used that muscle. And so if they're asked to do that, or are we as a society just not going to ask them to write something? If, if somebody wants to write a book and they've never had, you know, the, they've never been able to write a, a three-page paper, it, how are they going to be able to do that? Uh, all of these things I was thinking about. Mm. So uh, let me tie in there. Um, back in the 50s was when electronic calculators and computers were just barely kind of becoming available. In fact, yeah. Anyway, Isaac Asimov, a uh, science fiction writer, wrote a short story called The Feeling of Power. I went and looked up the title of it um, today. But it has exactly the issue that you're just talking about there. So this is hundreds of years in the future. Um, society is advanced with technology to the point where people have atrophied the ability to even like do three plus four in their head. They don't even know the mechanics if they're doing it on paper. And so this engineer for, um, uh, for a rocket company reverse engineers and figures out how to do longhand arithmetic. And he's the bulk of the story is him sitting in this boardroom with all of these big high level people 
trying to figure out how he's cheating when they ask him questions like three plus four, five times seven, and he's actually answering them because they ha they can't conceive of the fact that a human could do that anymore. It's all been relegated to machines. And so that's the dystopian future you're worried about with writing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and I mean, I recognize that there are some very mechanical aspects to writing. I mean, I, I even those are comforting aspects to certain students. They, you know, if I tell them, okay, so there's a subject, a verb, and an object, and that's all a sentence really is, and then everything else is just building upon that. You know, and I always, I think the example I always give, which then makes me always really nervous about how this comes across as weird to my students, but I'm like, okay, look at the, the sentence, I love you. You know, I, subject, love, verb, you, object. All right, there's a sentence. And that's, you, you look at the English language, it's just a series of that sort of process. But, and then we break the rules every once in a while <laughs> to be creative. But it, 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 I think the scary part of it is that it just, to me, and, and maybe it's so tied up in my own identity of how, how humid it is to create an argument uh, human, did I, I thought I said humid, uh, <laughs> how human it is to create an argument through writing. And if that's lost, uh, I think one of the, I guess maybe the doomsday situation number two would be that computers would be voicing what we think, um, exterior to ourselves. So, you know, right now, the, uh, some computers communicating with somebody about how to transfer funds from my bank account <laughs> to another computer um, without my knowledge. It's speaking for me. Or someone on the, the internet is speaking for Jim Hendigas uh, about some highly charged political topic and the computer is speaking and giving my voice. It, that That's uh, also a grand fear is that if a computer speaks for me, um, to what extent do I want a computer to speak for me? Uh, I, I don't know. Okay. So, um, Randy, you said you've been looking at Moonbeam. Yeah. Have you looked at any other of any of the other tools? I haven't. Um, there's been a lot of talk in our department. Um, in fact, Adam Dore, who was our guest last month, talked about, not in, in the uh, podcast with us, but when he spoke to a small group of faculty about Jasper. And um, I was told today that um, Dean Pedersen has a subscription to it and um, has been kind of exploring that. Because um, that was one of the questions I was thinking about using Moonbeam. I'm like, this, you know, is this a high-end product? Are there things that can do this kind of thing better than Moonbeam does? Because when I kind of walk you through this, there were some, there were some real roadblocks that it hit. Mm -hmm. um, and I kind of put those in there intentionally to see what would happen as a result. But no, are you familiar with some of the other programs? So I'm, I'm not actually familiar with any of the end-level tools. Um, a lot of them, I believe, are linked back to GPT-3, which is the Generative Pre-Trained Transformer version 3. Hmm. But not all of them are necessarily based on that, but that is, that's an, it's produced by a group called OpenAI, and it is... Uh, has been created as basically a statistical analysis of all writing that it can get its hands on. Mm -hmm. And so as I'm thinking about Jim's doomsday scenario, when people stop writing and only computers are writing, 
at some point the computer is going to be trained on what the previous computer said and we'll actually lose complete track of the way humans used to speak or to write. Interesting. I mean, that's like, what? You have to extrapolate quite a, quite a far into the future to get that. But So I've seen Battlestar Galactica. Is that <laughs> what? what <laughs> now, now it's, we're having this war of, of words. Am I gonna, are we going to have political candidate, candidates? One's a computer and the other one, and they speak differently. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I, don't know, I don't know. I don't know. But so for me, really, when you use something like this to generate text, all it's really doing is rolling a die to pick the, pick the next word. And the probability of picking that next word is based upon the number of times the, the next word has followed the word you're yeah. currently on. Yep. In the body of text that the uh, model was trained on. Okay. And then your keywords are, are I don't know, uh, I haven't looked in the details of their algorithms, but those keywords are basically influencing the probabilities and the starting point and right. the ending point. Is it more extensive, and I'm, as I'm wrapping my mind around it, is more, it's just a more extensive version of what we already see on our phones with predictive text or even, I mean, when I get an email, I think Google will put, if I just get an email and I start to type in, like, thanks, like there's already a box down below that's like, thanks, I appreciate it or something, so yeah, I won't have yeah. to put the effort into it. It's that into, same thing. But it's just, now we're looking at paragraphs or, or full bodies of Right. Uh, uh, papers. Right. Yeah, I um I I've thought about these things and I don't have the detailed knowledge of it um that you do, but I, I kind of had an understanding that that's how it would work. So um let me maybe go there, but before I do that, I just wanted to give a shout out. Um when Jim shared this article um with me, I started reading it and I quickly found that the two um fellows who got quoted from the University of Mississippi were both colleagues of mine when I was there as a graduate student. So um, Stephen Monroe, who's the director of their writing program, and he talks about, you know, the inevitability of this. It's everywhere. And then Robert Cummings, who also works in their writing program, I just wanted to quote him. He said, it is only through direct engagement with these emerging AI tools that students will gain familiarity with a purposeful integration into their writing process and an awareness of the ethical challenges of engaging AI in their writing. And so, you know, part of the equation might be challenging the students to look for those ethical, um, those ethical boundaries that are in the, that are being set. And, you know, it's changing, you know, it's changing as we speak, you know, this seeing these two um, uh, people that I remember from, you know, you know, Ole Miss, that was back in the early 2000s and I was teaching teaching composition there and thinking about my concerns now compared to my concerns then. And, you know, the, the essay warehouse, that was what it was. There was an essay warehouse that they could buy them from and they still kind of exist online. But at the same time, those kinds of things will be obsolete if, if students identify AI as a way that they can quote unquote cheat as we've been talking about. So, do you want me to take you through Moonbeam a little bit here and give you some uh, reportage of what I experienced as I pretended to be a student? Sure. Let's do it. All right. So um, I got a seven-day free trial, 
It costs $18 a month afterwards, so I got to make sure I shut that down before my seven-day free trial's over. The cost of higher education is still pretty high, and then you're going to add some (laughs) monthly subscriptions to pass your classes. Or just get your money's worth out of it if you keep your subscription. That's true. That's true. So I, um, there, you can identify yourself as a student. You can identify yourself as a professor. You can identify yourself as a, as a business person. That screen, I didn't write down all the options. But once I chose student, it gave me eight options. Did I want an essay? Did I want to create a blog? Did I want to create a um, Twitter thread, a how-to guide, a case study, a discussion post, a personal story, or a college admissions essay. So those were my choices. Um, I picked I picked essay and uh, then asked me title, audience, like I talked about. Then it gave me keywords. And then it created both an outline. And then after the outline, it generated points. Kind of like maybe if you were going to do a, a PowerPoint presentation, it had a, a list of bullet points. Mm-hmm. And then... At that point, it did offer me a very interesting option. It said, skip, generate, and edit from here. So it kind of suggested, okay, if if this is as far as you want AI to take you and you want to then generate this essay, stop here. But then there was also the option to generate. And so I did. How many pages? It was about, I believe it was about a thousand words um, when I eventually got to it. And um, I put in more keywords once than I did another time, but this, the length was pretty similar each time. So let me tell you about the first one. The first one would be a potential assignment in my English 2010 class. So I decided, okay, I'm going to write a paper about, let me get this one here at the bottom, about um, intervention programs for at-risk youth. So I typed in juvenile delinquency, crime prevention, intervention, mentoring. And I thought, okay, that's going to give me certain things. But then I thought, let me type in a very specific study that I'm familiar with that I have my students look into. So my last term was Cambridge Somerville Youth Study. So let me read you a couple of um, things that I think, you know, from a, a standpoint of this is the kind of writing that would work in an academic setting. Um, Under the category of do intervention programs work, I got this, um, I got this um, statement. Oh, let me read this one first. Intervention programs typically aim to address the underlying causes of delinquent behavior and provide support and guidance to at-risk youth. Studies have shown that these programs can be very successful in reducing juvenile crime rates overall, though there is no guarantee that every program will be effective in this way. There is no single solution to the problem of juvenile delinquency, but intervention programs can play an important role in addressing root causes of criminal behavior. From a very introductory standpoint, and when I say introductory, I mean in an introduction to a paper in which I'm asking students to write specifically about the specific study, the Cambridge Somerville Youth Study, that's prose that is very you know, acceptable and, and, and pretty accurate. Uh, and I think that that's something that is, is very interesting. You know, if a student were to write that, I would think, yeah, they're on board. They've, they've found some sources. They, 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 they're thinking about this topic. But then on the second page, 
and this was why I put that very specific term in there, mm -hmm. it says the Cambridge-Somerville Youth Study is one of the most comprehensive and well-known intervention programs for troubled youth. True. That is true. But then it says the study found that intervention programs can be effective in reducing problem behaviors and improving academic outcomes for at-risk youth. Part of the reason why people still talk about the Cambridge-Somerville Youth Study was actually the, the mentoring program part of it actually took place in the 1940s. The reason why people still talk about it today is because when they finally got the results, they found out that the mentoring, problem, uh, the mentoring program hurt the kids who were in the treatment program. They did worse in many measures than the people in the control group. And so on the basic level, like I said, it was right on target. And even I, I even think there's, there's a, 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 a deductive element there to say it's important because it's, let's see, what did, how did it describe it? Like I said, it, comprehensive. It doesn't say longitudinal. It's really, that's a big thing, but it's comprehensive and well-known. Absolutely true. But then, like you said, I think it rolled the dice and, you know, that was part of the problem that the researchers had is mentoring programs help. Mentoring programs are good. It rolled the dice that it would work. And in this particular case, it didn't. So, Because there are lots of phrases in the body of text that it consumed that say mentoring helps. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was just fascinated by that. And, and like I said, I put that specific term in for that very reason to see where it would draw from. And I won't go into detail about the one I did about Stephen Crane's um, short story, The Open Boat, which was written, which was written in right, right around 1900, which means it's full text all over the internet, right? Project Gutenberg mm -hmm. and other places like that. The whole text is there. And I typed in some keywords with that and it did a pretty good job. It said in the story, the correspondent finds that nature can be apathetic towards human beings. I, ne I didn't put in the title, uh, the name of the character, the correspondent, and it got that. Um, and the apathy of nature, it got that. But what really amazed me is it gave me four direct quotations with quotation marks, Crane's last name in parentheses and page numbers. And this is a story that I'd not only like, but I've taught a lot over the years. And I immediately was like, those quotes are wrong. Those quotes just do not appear in that story. And I got onto Project Gutenberg and I'm like, I'm, I'm right about this, right? And I just did a control find. And of the four quotes that it gave me, all four of them, not in the story. That really, really surprised me. So, but phrases within those quotes are probably in there. Yes. Yes. Phrases and words were, were in there. But the fact that it went to the length of putting it in quotation marks and giving me a, a proper MLA citation with author's last name and page mm -hmm. number, despite the fact that the quotes were inaccurate, again, very surprising. Not surprising to me. Okay. Tell me why. <laughs> well, just because if you take a bunch of uh, text that's been generated that actually does have real quotes from the story with real citations from author and page number, and you mix them all up in in a bottle and you start randomly pulling out a word, now what's a word that follows that somewhere? Well, the opening quotation's in there somewhere. The first word that comes after the quotation is in there. The word that comes after the word that's after the quotation is in there, and it eventually translates and morphs from one beginning of one quote to maybe some other stuff in the middle to the ending of another quote at the end. Interesting. That's the way I would expect that to be behaving. Yeah. 
Yeah. And if you go back to that actual page number, if you can find the actual text it was supposedly quoted from, you might find the end of that. The, like the end of that, the end of that quotation last, would be on that 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 page. That's okay. what I would expect to be able okay. to find. Okay, that's very interesting to me. I mean, it's it it, it was it was a, a like I said a very interesting experience. And uh, if it, I was someone who wasn't as familiar with that tax, and that was that may be my next thing during my seven day trial, <laughs> um, my seven day free trial is, um, it, and you tell me if this would would be true. Would it be less likely to be able to draw quotations from texts that are protected by copyright? So, for example, if I if I put in a, a short story that was written in 2006, there would be no full that well, there'd be no legal full text version of it online. Would 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 it be less likely to generate quotations? Do you think? So I, I would think so, but particularly from this particular. From this case, so the GPT three tool that I was playing with um, this last week, uh, I went in there and asked it to help write a summary of what it thought about the results of the twenty twenty two midterm elections. Wow! And what did it say? It made a prediction about how some people are thinking about the twenty twenty two predict uh, elections because the database of information, the text that it had to work on, was built prior to the 2022 elections. And so this new information hasn't been integrated into the model yet. So it can't generate sentences about the outcome. It can make, if there were any um, texts that were predicting outcomes, it could talk about predictions, but it couldn't talk about the results. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. So, and that's a more extreme version than something that was published in 2006, that there might have been a lot of papers written and published somewhere that, maybe this model was trained with, so it has access to quotes, even if it doesn't have access to the original article okay, or the original writing. Okay. When I think about it, it I, I'm, I think I can be persuaded to use this as a tool in an educational environment. And I think what makes me uncomfortable is the idea that it would take the place eventually after this, the student would go on to the career world and they would just say one that I'm just going to have AI writing all the time. And the, one of my thoughts about being okay with practice is that going back to the drum analogy is, I mean, there are, there's an online program, it's called GrooveScribe in which it actually, you can, you write down the notes and it, it, it plays through the notes. It's pretty similar to a lot of digital music production. And as a drummer, I will play along with a beat until I can actually reach the point of skill. And so if, if, if the student could use that composing to process an idea, that would be great. And I think the article talks a little bit about the facilitating thought. But what, what makes me nervous is that I, I had this thought, well, what if I read a novel over the summer that really deeply changed my life? And... I was like, I can't, this, this really spoke to me. It was, it was so meaningful to me. And then I found out that it was an AI generated text. Like it, it would almost, it would partially destroy me because I would think <laughs> I, I made this deep connection with this author, <laughs> this human being that had this really deep experience in life. And then it just turns out that it was just something that was generated. And that, that is something that, that gets to the core of me is that I think I, it means a lot to me that there's a human being writing it. 
And I don't know if that's me or if that's a, that's someone else, but I mean, there's some authentic aspect to it that, that, and, and I think about that in a professional way with our students, I think it's going to mean a lot to a student's audience in certain situations that it's them that is, is, is composing it, that they know they have the capability to compose it in other circumstances good old fashioned office memos. I don't know if works is going to care as much if, if it was auto generated or not, but, but I, I don't know that that's what, what I, I kind of think about. And, you know, any closing thoughts on, on that idea? How would you feel if that novel had been crowdsourced and, and, and written by a group of people that were all human? I, I would be more okay with it as long as I, and this is just me that I, I know that it was something that I could tell the distinct voices as opposed to it being a, a mob. Um, if I could tell that, all right, well, this is Sally from Seattle and this is uh, <laughs> Frank from St. George. I don't know. <laughs> because effectively the technology we're currently talking about, if it were to write a novel, the, the experiences and the ideas that it's expressing are really just samplings from the human experience. It would crowdsource it, but it would just have a much larger crowd to draw from. Yes. Okay. That, that's the way I would take that. There's still like a human DNA to it. It's just it, it pieced together digitally. Yes. <laughs> yes. All right. So I, I've done an um, early predecessor to the algorithms that we're talking about. Um, it's called Markov Babbling. But it basically, I've done this in, in class for years now. We'll take um, all of, say, Shakespeare's works from Project Gutenberg, um, throw them into one of these statistical tables, and then just have it babble out sentences using the vocabulary of Shakespeare. And it's not as sophisticated as these tools because it's like 30-year-old technology. Um, but you can watch it start to try to tell stories, and you can watch it do exactly what you're saying with your quote there, Randy, where it morphs from one part of one one of his plays into another part of another play, but the, there's a crossover of three or four words that kind of help it connect and glue it together. So you get kind of a, it doesn't tell a coherent story because again, it's, it's older technology, but it's pretty interesting and pretty fun to play with. Um, so, Well, Curtis, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this has been a great conversation. Uh, this is very insightful. It, it's really good to talk to someone outside of, um, our circles because we can get into a, a, a pretty much a, some kind of cycle of, of uh, doom. <laughs> we're like, well, we're just going to be looking for jobs somewhere else in, in some other field because the, the computers are going to be evaluating and writing it. So uh, whatever. Um, no, we'll <laughs> we usually have to talk ourselves off the, you know, the, that that cycle and know that we're still valuable, right, Randy? Yes, yes. You're, you are valuable, Jim. And I think if you keep focusing on those core abilities that you're trying to help develop with, with your students, help your students to develop, that you'll come up with ways to help them develop it regardless of the technology that's out there. Mm -hmm. it, it's true. I, I think it goes back to teaching. We always kind of have to adapt, and that's just the reality of it. So I, I, we're probably running out of time. But one of the things, so I, I teach programming, right, across the board. So even with our freshman students, we still have them do quizzes and exams where they write computer programs on a piece of paper. Small ones. 
but it's helping them to demonstrate that they need to know the basic fundamentals of how to put these elements together to make sense. And I don't know if that's if you end up making your students write paragraphs in class on paper to demonstrate that they can actually generate that thought. Yeah, we, we, that just just jumped into my mind. That's the reverse of it, right? You know, do you do you feel maybe the same way we feel when um, somebody says, "Hey, I built this web page," and all it was was just you know a, a click and pull program. You know, didn't write any of the code. Don't know what's behind that wall yeah. of of the uh, of the page. But I just kind of dragged and, and and placed things here. It's we're it's, really it's, good at rolling our eyes. <laughs> <laughs> I sure could, you did. I could, I could, <laughs> I could see that that was a similar. Uh, that could be a similar type response. That there's a lot of tools out there that can help those of us who know nothing about programming put together a passable web page. Right. Yeah. This has been a great conversation. Uh, this is, uh, for Curtis and Jim and Randy. This is Being Human Utah Tech. This has been the Being Human UTU podcast with Dr. Randy Jasmine and Dr. Jim Hindigas. Please follow and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. From Utah Tech University, this is the Being Human UTU podcast.